Our text for the morning message comes from Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to read the first seven verses of Isaiah 9. But before we do, I want you to flip back a page or two to Isaiah chapter 7. The context of what we're going to be looking at this morning begins back in chapter 7. And uh, I just want to point out and remind you that it's in chapter 7 and in verse number 14 that Isaiah, uh, looking through the, uh, the telescope of prophecy, wrote down Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God become human through the miracle of the virgin birth. Chapter 9, verse number 1, after the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8, all about the judgment of God on a rebellious people. Chapter 9, verse 1, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increase the joy, the joy before thee according to the joy and harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Christmas season, I, I, you know, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. I used to sing that because I went for years without two front teeth. And it wasn't because of my brother Sam. I was uh, running up a set of stairs when I was a little boy. And I had my lasso rope all, all wound up. And I was carrying my lasso and running up the stairs and tripped on the rope. And the front two teeth caught the edge of the stair a couple of stairs in front of me, popped them right back out. I went for, I guess it must have been two, or two years or longer without any front teeth. I, I sang that song for a couple of years. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. And finally, I finally got them. Well, what do you want for Christmas? I'd have to say all I want for Christmas 
is his presence in my life more and more and more. What else could you ever want for Christmas? Jesus Christ is so awesome. All I want for Christmas is him. His presence, his reality. We're at a time of year when professing Christians are thinking more about his birth. And, uh, and it does us good to pause and think about who he is. Do you know who he is? We're going to look this morning at the question, who is Jesus Christ? The bottom line up front this morning is that Jesus Christ is the light Victory and joy of the whole world. He is the one that life is all about. But who is he? His identity and his character has often been shrouded with mystery. So testifies 1 Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. It's always been a mystery. It's always been a controversy. Who is this baby up there in a manger? What is Christmas all about? Who is this person? You know, the Old Testament prophets, the Bible tells us that uh, uh, in the New Testament, in First Peter, the Bible tells us that the Preachers of the Old Testament, when they preached, they didn't know what they were preaching. And when they wrote by inspiration of God what God had told them to preach and to write, they scratched their heads and looked at what they had preached, looked at what they had written, and they couldn't figure it out. Why? Because of the controversy, the contradictions that they read in their messages. 53, Isaiah preached that he would be one despised, rejected, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet in Isaiah 32, he said he would be a king reigning in righteousness. And in Isaiah 40, he would be the Lord God coming to rule with strong arm. How can he be despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and at the same time, being a king ruling with a strong arm. Contradictions. Isaiah preached that he would be a man born in Bethlehem. Of the seed of David, we're told in 1 Samuel. The Messiah would be a man. A human being. He'd be born in Bethlehem. He would be of the lineage of King David. In and yet Micah said he would be God whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. He never had a beginning point. He's always existed. Contradictions. A man born in Bethlehem or a God who's always been? Which is it? And they would scratch their heads in confusion, the Old Testament preachers. Psalm 22 tells us he would be one crucified in the agony of defeat. And yet, says he would be the victorious conquering king, establishing an eternal kingdom of peace. Which is it? Will he be one who dies in the agony of defeat? Or will he be, will he be a king establishing an everlasting kingdom? Which is it? Contradictions. Who is this Jesus Christ? 
There's always been question marks because of the contradictions, it would seem, that the Old Testament preachers recorded. In the New Testament, the people who lived around the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus spent most of his earthly life, they asked, who are you? Aren't you the carpenter's son? Didn't you come from Nazareth? And yet, when Jesus ministered and taught and preached and healed and calmed seas, Matthew records that Jesus asked his apostles, Who are people saying that I am? Just the carpenter's son from Nazareth? They said, Oh, no, the people are saying you're Elijah. Some of them are saying you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. Some say you're Jeremiah come back to earth. And Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? Just the carpenter's son born in Nazareth? Oh, no, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Contradictions, questions. Who is he? Who is this Jesus Christ? Well, the confusion continues today. Cults deny who he is. The ignorance even of professing Christians to know and to explain who Jesus Christ is. And even the apathy of the indifferent leaves the contradictions Rolling forward year after year. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is this baby born and laying in a manger? Who is this historic person that divided our calendar by his life? Who is this one who caused such a stir in the ancient world and then quickly left in the disgrace of a Roman crucifixion? Who is this Jesus Christ? Question of questions. And Christian, Christmas brings it into view. Christmas encourages us to meditate on who He is. And so every Christmas season, we spend at least one sermon answering the question, Who is Jesus? from one of the different great Christological passages of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, that highlight who Jesus is. And every year we study a different passage. We answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? And this year, we're looking at Isaiah chapter number 9 to learn something about the identity of Jesus Christ. Okay, we can go ahead and have our map up here because you've got to have a little history lesson here before you're going to understand what we read in Isaiah 9. Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9, we have coming into view four different locations in the ancient world, of course, if you like geography, you know this is the Mediterranean Sea. That's modern-day Turkey. Europe is over there. Africa's down here. And uh, um, Ethiopia's right down there, Massacre. Ethiopia's right, right down there. And uh, so this is, this is the land of the Middle East. Judah is known as the Southern Kingdom, sometimes called Judah in the Bible, capital city of Jerusalem, the main part, the southern part of, is, of, of what we know of as Israel. But Israel is separated from Judah. Israel we know of as the northern kingdom. Their capital city was Samaria, the northern kingdom, uh, apostatized and rebelled against God 
and began to worship idols. They had idols set up. We were at the, when we went to Israel last, our group, we stood on the very platform where the altar was built for the northern kingdom to worship their idols in Dan, the northern part of the northern kingdom. Syria is mentioned. Syria was the country just to the north of the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. Capital city of Damascus, by the way, is Israel's, the northern kingdom's king was Ahaz. We're going to deal with him. Uh, that's the southern kingdom, I'm sorry. The southern kingdom's king was Ahaz. The northern kingdom's king was Pekah. Syria's king was Rezin. And then the looming world power of Assyria, whose capital city was Nineveh, the feared Assyrian armies, the ones to whom God sent Jonah to preach and offer them forgiveness for their sin. And if they didn't repent, God would destroy them in 40 days. And Jonah jumped up and down with glee. And he says, I'm not gone. I'm going to leave them without the opportunity to repent. I, God is too merciful. He's just liable to forgive them. And, uh, and if, if they would die, if they could be destroyed, that will save our country from the armies of Assyria. So Jonah took off in the other direction and wouldn't go to Nineveh to preach the first time until God made him go. King of Assyria was Tiglath-Pileser III. These four countries come into play. You can leave that map up just for a few more minutes here. In our text of Isaiah chapters 7, 8, and 9, this was 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. And Isaiah, the preacher, is preaching to the southern kingdom in Jerusalem. And Isaiah is preaching to a southern kingdom who was living in rebellion against God, whose king, King Ahaz, is not following the instructions of the word of God and is leading the people away from God. And Isaiah is preaching God's judgment to the northern kingdom, the, or to the southern kingdom in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom, whose king was Pekah, the northern kingdom had made a league with Syria, and the northern kingdom and the southern uh, the northern kingdom and Syria entered into a league to attack the southern kingdom. And God is delivering a message through Isaiah to the king of the southern kingdom, Ahaz. Don't be afraid. Trust God and obey God. Ahaz wouldn't do that. He decided to trust his friends. And so the southern kingdom contacted Assyria. You can read about it in uh, Second Kings. He contacted the king in Assyria. And he said, I need you to come and help me. I don't trust God. I'm not trusting God to deliver me from Syria and the northern kingdom. I need your armies to help me. And God said, enough is enough. And the long suffering of God snapped. Isaiah had been preaching to King Ahaz that if he would have faith in God, if he would believe God, if he would follow God, God would destroy the king of the northern kingdom and the king of Syria 
and the southern kingdom would have victory. But Ahaz doesn't have faith in God. He would rather trust Tiglath-Pileser III with the Assyrian armies than trust God. So God says enough is enough. Judgment must fall. Chapter 8 ends in verse number 21 and 22 saying, They shall pass through it, hardly be stead and hungry, and it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. God says enough is enough. Ahaz, judgment is certain. And you know what God does? God raises up and uses the very king that Ahaz was trying to trust to help him beat the northern kingdom of Syria. God used Assyria. And you read about it here in the context of this passage in Isaiah, how God was going to use Assyria to bring the judgment of God upon the northern kingdom because of their failure to follow God with faith. That's what's going on in the nation Isaiah's the preacher. He's preaching to a rebellious people and a rebellious king. He's announcing judgment. He says, you'll be driven to darkness. And then chapter 9 opens up. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first, he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and so forth, he said, In verse number 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. You'll see emphasized in verses 2 and 3, light, victory, and joy. And that passage was quoted and used during the, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ to announce to the people of Galilee, That this passage had come to fulfillment. That with the presence of Jesus Christ, light, victory, and joy had come to Israel. In answer to the prophecy 700 years before that God gave to Isaiah and Isaiah preached to the people. Light would drive away the darkness of spiritual ignorance and judgment. Victory would be given to Israel as she's delivered from her oppressors. And joy would ring out throughout the land. Jesus Christ's presence will bring light, victory, and joy to Israel. Just as God promised 700 years earlier. How could this be? How could light and victory and joy Come to a people who were on the verge of the Assyrians coming down and attacking them. The massive, mighty, horrific Assyrian soldiers and armies. They're going to sweep down. They're going to wipe out Syria. They're going to wipe out the northern kingdom. They're going to wipe out the southern kingdom right up to the city of Jerusalem before God stops them. To this people in Israel, how could there ever be light, victory, And joy. 
How could that ever be? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a government is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Jesus Christ is the source of all light, all victory, and all joy. Jesus Christ is the answer to all problems, to all challenges, and all difficulties. Jesus Christ is the one who can turn the disaster that Israel was enduring into the glory of light. Now, what do we know about this person that Isaiah is talking about? I want you to see with me three powerful truths about Jesus Christ from Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6. We're going to learn something about the nature of his person. We're going to learn something about the greatness of his position. And we're going to learn something about the character of his person. Let's look at these three truths. The first truth has to be the nature of his person. Verse number 6 tells us, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Two statements, two emphatic statements about the nature of this person we know of as Jesus Christ. We're told here that a child would be born. Speaking of his humanity, his perfect humanity, this person is a human being. Jesus is a human being. He's 100% man. He was born into the human race. He was born of a woman by the name of Mary. Jesus Christ is human. He took flesh and blood and became man. Hebrews chapter 2 declares, For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself took part of the same. Just like your flesh, just like your human Jesus is human. He took flesh and blood just like every other human being. That through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus became human because man sinned and lost favor with God, and it'll take a man... To conquer the devil and regain the possibility of relationship with God. And so he had to become man. So Jesus became man to destroy the power of death, to conquer Satan and to deliver us. But what was Jesus, who was Jesus, before he became man? Isaiah declared, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, you'll notice it doesn't say a son is born. If he said, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is born, the second phrase would merely clarify that the person who was born is male. The child born is not female. The child born is male. But the Bible doesn't say, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is born. It says, unto us a child is born. He's human, but unto us a son is given. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. This second phrase speaks to the reality of Jesus' perfect deity. He's far more than a human being. He's God incarnate in human flesh. 
He's eternal God. Wrapped in human skin. He's 100% God. While also being 100% man. This is he whom God the Father would give. And in Isaiah 7, just two chapters earlier, when he said that he would be born of a virgin, he said, you'll call him God with us. No, he'll be born of a virgin. He'll be human. He'll have flesh and blood, but he won't merely be man. He'll be God wrapped in humanity. Emmanuel. God with us. He was God becoming man, partaking of humanity, that he might save whosoever will come to him for salvation. And that conception that introduced eternal God into humanity was accomplished by the great work of God the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary while she was still a virgin so that Jesus Christ would not be born as the son of Joseph. He would be born as the son of God. A child born perfect humanity. A son given perfect deity. That's the nature of his person. Well, what about his position? What's he going to do coming to earth? What's his position going to be? The greatness of his position. We see in verse number six that the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's going to shoulder the government of earth. It's further explained in verse 7 where it says, The increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. When Jesus Christ steps into the role, when he steps into the position of the government being placed on his shoulders, it's never going to go off his shoulders. He won't be in for a four-year term. Of his government, there shall be no end. And once he shoulders the government of earth and establishes peace on earth, there will be no end to his government and there will be no end to peace on earth. Verse number six declares it. Verse number seven rather declares it. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. This is the throne of King David. This is Israel. This is Jerusalem. This is the star of David. Canadians love to sing their national anthem. And their last verse of their national anthem says, Ruler supreme who hears humble prayer. Hold our dominion in thy loving care. Help us to find, O God, in thee a lasting rich reward. As waiting for the better day, we stand on guard for Canada. The better day is when we no longer salute the stars and stripes of the United States of America. We bow to the star of David. We no longer look to Washington as our capital. We revere Jerusalem as our capital. And our king, shouldering the government of the world, establishing universal peace, will be the descendant of King David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem in this world. His position, he is king, will rule this world. Son of David, the throne of David, an eternal kingdom, establishing it with judgment and justice. Can you believe that? Are you looking forward to justice in government? 
Have you ever been more disgusted with government than you are right now? Are you looking forward to right judgment and justice being the governing ideals of the government of the world? It's coming. That one up there that was a little baby 2,000 years ago will rule this world with judgment and with justice, establishing peace and of His government There will be no end. Wow. This world is still waiting for this prophecy to be fulfilled. The Old Testament preachers preached about it. Jesus was born to bring it. According to the angel talking to Mary before she conceived, the angel told her that he would do exactly what Isaiah had prophesied in this passage. Jesus was born to bring it. Jesus and John the Baptist announced it all over Israel. Then Israel rejected it. And Jesus left. But he left with a promise. He said, I'm coming back to produce it later on. Jesus' position. But just how certain can we be that this is going to... Is this pipe dreams? How certain can we be that this is really going to happen? Verse 7 ends by saying, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. You recognize the name, Lord of hosts? Lord is in all capital letters, right? You know, you, you, you're, a Bible, you're Bible students, you know that whenever in your Bible the word Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that was the translators of our Bible informing us that the Hebrew name is Jehovah. Jehovah. Jehovah of hosts. The hosts of all the angelic armies. The hosts of all of created force and power. Jehovah, the commander-in-chief of all of the armies of heaven, will perform this. It's going to happen. (laughs) It's going to happen. God has put His reputation on the line and His power as the commander-in-chief of all of the armies of heaven on the line. He will do this. Wow. What a position. Who is Jesus Christ? He's God wrapped in human flesh. What's his position? He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He's got a chess game going on that's got so many levels of complexity. You can't figure out the moves he's making on the board. But he knows exactly what he's doing. And he'll sacrifice a pawn here. He'll sacrifice a pawn there. Because he's zeroing in on the king. The king of this world. The god of this world. Satan himself. And he's working out a strategy that's more complicated than you and I could ever figure out. He will do this. Well, that's who he is. That's what he does. What his position is. How about one truth? The character of his person. Verse number 6 describes him. This is the part I love the best. His name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful. You total up all that Jesus Christ is to you. You total up all that Jesus Christ has done in your life. 
What other word could you come up with? He's wonderful. He has been so good to me. Second Corinthians declares, though he was rich, yet for my sake, he became poor. That I, poverty-stricken, sinful, undeserving, might be made rich in Him. He is a wonderful Savior who changed everything in my life. Galatians 1 declares our Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us from this present evil world. This present world is an evil world. And we're going to be delivered from this present evil world. We have been delivered. We just haven't cashed the check yet. He is a wonderful Savior. So wonderful beyond description. His name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. You know, he's got a lot of good advice to give. The psalmist said in Psalm 16, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. Jesus Christ's advice is perfect. And we never go wrong for following His advice. That's one of His names. He is an amazing counselor. Isaiah chapter 11, just a couple of pages over from where we're looking today, the first five verses, you might want to read them sometime, describing this Messiah, this branch, uh, this uh, one that came out of the, the stem of Jesse, this one King David, uh, came from King David. That Isaiah 11, 1 to 5, Jesus is characterized by the words wisdom and understanding, knowledge, right, righteousness, faithfulness. His, his counsel is so wise. And His counsel is all written in a counseling manual. And this counseling manual addresses the problems of life and eternity. Now, the one thing it doesn't have is a cross-reference system to quickly find the one verse you're looking for. So you've got to read the whole thing. And in this amazing counseling manual, you find the counsel from Jesus Christ, and His counsel is wise, filled with knowledge and understanding, careful with discernment and fairness. His name shall be called Counselor. Romans 11 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How searchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. You'll never get to the bottom of His counsel. There's always more to learn and to put into practice. His counsel is deep in its wisdom and its knowledge. Colossians 2 says, In whom, speaking of Jesus and Jesus, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wow. It reveals to us a heaven that is bliss and a hell that is 
horrible with eternal fiery torment. It reveals to us a God who so loved us that he sacrificed his son, Jesus Christ himself, that our sins might be forgiven and we might be delivered from that place of sin and hell. His counsel reveals to us the means whereby we might be saved by the power of God from the power of our sin. And then his counsel reveals to us the means whereby we might live a holy life that is satisfying and good. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tell us the will of God is good. And it'll prepare us for the moment that we one day stand in front of our Creator and Savior to give an account for the life that we lived and how well we managed the resources He placed at our disposal. His counsel will get us ready for that day. Have you ever been on a job where you had an annual review that had you shaking in your boots? And as you prepared for that annual review and wondered about what the boss was going to say and know what the repercussions of that annual review was going to be, and you were sweating buckets because you were going to stand and give a review for the job that you'd done, do you know that is piddly in comparison to the review that each of us will have one day when we stand in the presence of our Creator and give an account for how we used His resources that He put at our disposal and we give an account for our lives as His children after salvation. You know, this manual will get you ready for that day. It'll get you ready for that big review. Oh, he's a wise counselor. But then there's a third name. Not only is he wonderful, not only is he counselor, he's the mighty God. And the emphasis is on the descriptive word mighty. It's the name for God that speaks of raw power, explosive energy. He's the mighty God. He's the God who is strong beyond description. The Bible reveals to us in the Old and uh, in Colossians, Revelation, the Gospel of John, Ephesians, and Hebrews, various New Testament books. The Bible records for us and reveals that it was Jesus. It wasn't God the Father. It wasn't God the Spirit. It was Jesus who spoke the words that created the universe. Unto us. A child is born. A son is given. He is the mighty God that spoke and everything happened. Power. Raw power. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. That's the name for strength and power. Explosive power. He spoke and the sun was there. He spoke and the stars were there. He spoke and everything happened. Power unleashed beyond our description. That's Jesus Christ. He is the mighty God. He's stronger than my strongest problem and greater than my greatest hardship and mightier than my mightiest difficulty. And in my human weakness and depravity, I have found that Jesus is a strong refuge. The psalmist said, the Lord is my defense and my God is the rock of my refuge. In another place, thou art my rock and my fortress. Another place, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In him will I trust. 
He can break the power of sin, give eternal life, and solve earthly problems. He is the mighty God. (laughs) Not just a little baby in a manger. Eternal God of power and might beyond description. And then he's called the everlasting Father. That used to cause me to scratch my head. I know God the Son is not God the Father. God the Holy Spirit's not God the Son. God the Son's not God the Holy Spirit. God the Father's not God the Son. There are three persons. Those three persons are one eternal God. And that's as far as my mind can go. I can't get past that. I can't understand past that. I just know there are three different people. They're not one and the same. But yet they're one God. So why is Jesus called the Everlasting Father? Well, we could ask him that when we get there. But my best hunch is that Jesus is to me and will be for all of eternity everything a good dad is to his kids. A good dad who provides for his kids. A good dad who protects his kids. A good dad who takes care of his kids. Jesus Christ, as the everlasting Father, is a compassionate provider for me throughout all of eternity. I'm never going to be an orphan. I'm never going to be without somebody looking out for me. And for all of eternity, He will be my protector, my provider. He'll nourish me. He'll do everything as a wise instructor, trainer, and provider for all of eternity. <laughs> no wonder the psalmist said, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one that trusteth in Him. O oh, fear the Lord, ye His saints, for there is no want. There is no want. There is no lack. There is nothing else that you could want for. There is no want to them that fear Him. For all of eternity, there will be no wants. He feeds the sparrows and waters the lilies, and for all of eternity, He's going to take care of me. He's an everlasting Father. And finally, He's the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince who will completely subdue every opposing foe and banish every disturbing element and bring peace to this world finally and fully after all these thousands of years of human Existence, Jesus Christ, will produce peace on earth. He's the Prince of Peace. What does that mean to me today? It means the basis of everything I'm hoping for is found in Jesus Christ. And by the way, you do realize that there will not be peace on earth until everyone on earth is at peace with God. That's why it doesn't come until after the tribulation period. Everyone left on earth will have peace with God, will be in peace with God. Peace will have been made with God. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians, In Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for He is our peace. I was the enemy of God for the first 14 years of my earthly life. But all that night, when I got down on my knees as a 14-year-old teenager, I said, God, I know I'm going to hell. My baptism didn't get me into favor with you. My church membership didn't get me into favor with you. There's no, all my effort and my, 
my uh, perfect attendance records and, and, and all of our uh, prayers and all of the things we've done to try to, God, there's nothing that will bring me into peace with you but Jesus Christ. And I'm asking Jesus Christ to come into my life and to save me from my sin. Bam! Something changed in me. The guilt of sin was gone. I, who has been an enemy of God, had signed the peace treaty. And God signed it in blood with His own signature. And I had peace with God. And ever since then, I have lived with a peace with my Creator that is tangible and real in my life. Colossians says, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Romans says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the one that makes it possible for peace to be established on an individual, personal basis with your Creator. And when everyone on this globe has the peace with God, their Creator, Jesus will establish peace governmentally on this earth. And it's coming. It's coming. Peace with God. Who is Jesus Christ? He's God wrapped in human flesh. What's His position? He's King. And what's He like? He's wonderful. He's a counselor. He's strong. He provides me with everything. And most importantly, He made peace between me and my Creator. Do you know Him? Do you know Jesus Christ? Has He made peace between you and your Creator? Do you know that if you died today, you would be ushered immediately into the presence of your Creator and you would be welcomed with open arms, not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus Christ is.